Today's message is entitled, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Matthew chapter 23, uh, let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Matthew chapter 23, the continuation of our Jesus ethics series. I'm going to read the entire passage. There are moments in messages and in teachings when what Jesus says is more powerful than what the pastor says. Every now and then that happens. You guys aren't laughing as much as I thought you were going to laugh at that comment. But anyway, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I pre- thank you. I'll, okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice What they preach, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher... And you are, you are all brothers, and, you, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of... The kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple now, that you are bound by oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, bl- you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, 
If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whoa. This is honestly one of my favorite passages of Jesus' teaching. Now, I, I wanted to put some images of the nice Jesus, the buddy Jesus, the Jesus with the lamb, the Jesus with the halo, the Jesus that floats six inches off the ground, the Jesus in the white bathrobe and the blue Miss America sash, you know, loving all the kids and the people and welcoming all, you know, these are the images that we have. And I wanted to talk about how there's this contrast, but you can read it, you can hear it in this passage. He's a little ticked off. And he is giving some of the most harshest teachings in this passage. I want to share with you why this is one of my favorite passages. Because I feel frequently, as probably you do, the same way that Jesus does about religious people. And when I hear Jesus say, woe to you, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you know what, you're not even entering the kingdom of heaven, and you're even preventing other people you go off and you make converts and you're actually making them twice the sons of hell that you are. It's like, oh. Can you imagine going up to a pastor and saying that? Hey, look at all this altar call. What are all these people? Yeah, you're making them twice the sons of hell that you are. I feel something very deep with this passage. Let me give you some images, some pictures, some context, and then I want to share with you why. First of all, um, he talks about Moses' seat. In the very beginning, he says, those who sit on Moses' seat, you should listen to. And the reason for that is because in ancient synagogues, just like this one, in every synagogue, there was a seat called Moses' seat. This is the original one found um, in a city called Chorazin, which is in the city of Galilee. Jesus taught all throughout these synagogues. Now, the reason why this is important is because if somebody sat in the Moses' seat, they were charged for that particular service to read the Torah, to read the scriptures, to read the teachings that God had given into his word. And so when he talks about listen to the Pharisees and do what they say because they sit here, he's talking about saying, listen, you should listen because they are teaching directly from the book. And it's important to catch that. What God has given us in these teachings in the Old Testament, in what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah, all these different terms, the Bible that we carry around with us, is really, really important and is there to give us the very best of life, is there to give us the very best of direction, to, to have the greatest human flourishing possible. 
And so Jesus is affirming the teachings that these people share because they sit in Moses' seat. It's really important for us to catch that because so often we're going to think that when Jesus is, you know, railing against these Pharisees and these scribes, we often hear about tithing, about the altar, etc., that Jesus is throwing away everything from the past, but he's not doing that. He's saying everything that they teach is actually pretty good. And one of those things they, they teach is this. When in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you were to be devout and pious, if you were to be somebody who was dedicated to God, you would put on your forehead what are known as tephilim or phylacteries. These are actual phylacteries found from a city called Qumran in ancient Israel. They are pockets or little boxes in which you roll up and tie up pieces of scripture, usually uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Numbers chapter 11, other passages, and they are there to remind you of your devotion to God. This is what they look like today. You might have seen religious Jews wear these today, and you know, they perhaps for those of us who are uncertain about this, it looks a little funny or we're a little uncertain about it. But this is what they look like. It's a dedication of of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here's the thing. What I love about Jesus is he's again, kind of uh, sponsoring clowning because he says, listen, this is important. Put this symbol on your head because it's part of what it means to be a devoted follower of God. But he says, don't do what they do. Why? Because this beautiful symbol, this beautiful image, this beautiful tradition, you know what they do? They make things really big. They say, here it is. And, all, and he's saying, like, they make their phylacteries huge. And you can see the size of this one. It's like, okay, um, I'm really, I'm super pious. I'm super religious. And not only that, they make their tassels long. Now, here are some tassels. Many of you have seen those. For, for those of you who have been to Israel with us, you've seen these before. And people walk around with them all the time. And what he says, basically, is they put, make their phylacteries wide. And then they make their tassels long. And they parade them all around to show people how pious they are. And he's basically making fun of these people for doing this. Now, again, what we have to understand is that the traditions or the commandments to do these things, those in and of themselves is not what Jesus is railing against. Why? Because tradition, these commandments, these things are good. And I can't talk about tradition unless I talk about this. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. 
For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Do you hear that? Because of our traditions, we know who we are and we know what God wants us to do. Now, we have our own traditions, don't we? All of us have our own traditions, the traditions that hold us together, that give us meaning. And when you say your marriage vows, for those of you who have been married or are getting married anytime soon, when you say to have and to hold, to love and to cherish in sickness and in health till death do us part, that is a tradition that binds us once again together into a central feeling of meaning. When we take communion and the symbols of the bread and the wine or the juice, that has deep meaning. It reminds us of who we are. Some of you have Thanksgiving traditions. I think of uh, my wife who has grandma's green olive stuffing that has to be there. And if it's not there, it's not Thanksgiving. And the one year where a distant family relative wanted to try Southwestern style stuffing, the entire Thanksgiving was just completely in disarray. This was not Thanksgiving. Where's the green olive stuffing? It's a tradition. It binds us all together. And all of these traditions, all of these things, the phylacteries, the tassels, the ways in which we conduct ourselves, these are really deeply important for giving us meaning. These religious things that we do give us deep meaning, identity, purpose, focus, and connection with God. And what Jesus is doing in this passage by making their tassels super long by making their phylacteries really wide is that they're turning these traditions into something that they are never intended to be. And all of us know people and religions and religious institutions that do exactly that today. And what it does is instead of holding on to the deepness and the passion and the meaning of the tradition that provides for each and every one of us a connection with history, a connection with God, it becomes a burden and a task and a duty that is completely stripped of any meaning, stripped of any connection, stripped of any purpose whatsoever. Um, I kind of like to sum it up in this way. Traditions are the living faith of dead people, the things that are passed along to us. But what these people have done, they've turned traditions into traditionalism, which is the dead faith of living people. Just doing those religious things over and over and over again. For what? For show? To show people how pious I am? To show you that I'm more religious than you? To show other people how much better I am. And by doing that, by doing that, Jesus, again, is brilliant. He says, you are heaping upon people burdens that they themselves, that you yourselves cannot even bear. And religious institutions and other institutions do this all the time. You take something that is meaningful, you take something that is grounding, you take something that is deeply historic, connecting, and turn it into something that is just for show. And so, what Jesus does in that is he begins to rail on these religious leaders because you are not to do that. And I love Jesus for this because I feel the same way. Whenever I see religious people take religious traditions that are meant for good, that are meant for hope, that are meant for healing, that are meant for love, that are meant for life, and turn it into a burden 
and turn it into a weight and turn it into an obligation that is stripped of all of that meaning, I feel angry too. And so Jesus uses some really harsh language. He says, whoa, W-O-E. This is the kind of woe that says, I can't even say it in church. You know what I mean. On you. For doing this to people with the beautiful message that God has given us. Seven woes. First woe, locking people out of the kingdom of God. He mentions that you're not even entering and you're preventing other people from coming in. You are making, you go off and you make all of these converts. You say, wonderful people are coming to the faith, but yet because of the kind of religion and kind of faith you're doing, you're making them converts, essentially sons of hell, which is a real kicker because these people consider themselves sons of Abraham. <laughs> Same language, uh, different father. Interesting. Okay. Then he says, blind guides that make false distinctions, shame on you. You swear by the altar, but you don't swear by the gold of the altar, and you don't swear by the ear or the leaf of the gold of the altar. Making distinctions that really don't matter. All of it is all together. All of it is connected. Uh, Woe to you, hypocrites who have neglected the weightier matters of the law. For those of you who heard the greater and lesser uh, teaching that we did a couple weeks ago, these people are completely neglecting that. There is no such thing as greater and lesser. All of it is the same. Um, Actually, they're they're neglecting the weightier matters of the law and doing the things that are not as weighty, tithing the mint and the cumin. See how righteous we are? We put, in our, we put in our 50 cents into the offering. We do this and this. But they've neglected justice and mercy and faith and love. Woe to you, hypocrites who clean the outside, neglect the inside. This is about ritual purity. Woe to you, hypocrites who clean the outside and neglect the inside. This is about piety, about what kind of person you are. Remember, you are whitewashed sepulchers. Woe to you, hypocrites. And then he says, I love this. You make temples and tombs, you make tombs to the prophets that have gone before you, but these are the same prophets that have completely rejected God, and yet you bow down to them, and you honor them, and you don't even recognize that you are in that same lineage. Open your eyes and recognize that if you're going to honor that, honor the fullness of the story. And so he uses a lot of these images. Washing of hands, which is, again, a wonderful tradition. It provides for you an image, a picture, a symbol of what does it mean to be pure before God. But yet they completely neglect the tradition and turn it into traditionalism. And then he says this phraseology, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel, which is hilarious because what is the size differential, right? You take care of this little itty-bitty thing, but yet, oh, forget the camel. The kosher law is here. And then he says, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. You are, look really good on the outside, By the way, you turn on the TV to any religious station, they might look good on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and self-fulfillment and self-indulgence. And then he says, you brood of vipers, kind of the symbol of the devil himself, which is a fascinating contrast. This is a completely different teaching, but I love that he says brood of vipers because later he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish I would have gathered you like a brood of chickens. So he's using that as a contrast. Now, why is this important to me? Why, why do I think that this is really, really critical, and why do I love Jesus so much for saying, whoa, to you? We know that religions and non-religions or faith in our culture is perhaps frequently in contention, and people are fighting all the time, and you will hear, and I know it's, it's been popular, it's in New York Times, they're bestsellers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 
about secular people or non-religious people or atheists who attack Christians and Christians who attack atheists, and there's always this war. And what's fascinating about this is that both sides are arguing with each other about how the abuses of the other are taking hold in our culture or about how the abuses are being neglected. In addition to that, we know that we have a bunch of religions that do the same thing. Christians will argue with Buddhists, and Buddhists will argue. You know, it's just this constant circle, and we're tr- some people are trying to find peace, but there's always this sense that religion and religious oppression, because of this propensity of humanity to take something wonderful and take something good and turn it into something that's oppressive, you know, Religions are then pointing fingers at each other and say, well, but you're doing this, and look how bad you're doing at that. So we have this, and Jesus points out here that there may be some reasons for that. Well, some of it is just simply to be seen by others. Some of it is because they actually want places of honor or prestige. Um, Some of it is because you want this great reputation amongst the people. It garners you some sort of power. And so perhaps some of the reason why religions and non-religions, all these ideologies turn into oppression is not because of the beauty of the symbol of what these traditions mean, but because people actually leverage religion or leverage traditions for show, for power, for control, and most of all, for self-aggrandizement. Do you know people like this? Do you, have you heard of religious institutions or religious people that take something that is deeply meaningful, powerful connection with God, life-giving, and turn it into something that is about power, control, and celebrity. We all know people like this. We see it in our culture all the time. We see it in our religious institutions. We see it in our secular institutions all the time. And the reason why I love Jesus so much is because he is willing to bring some of his harshest criticism to those people who claim to have the gift of God and to claim to have that responsibility for the spiritual nourishment of the people and turn it into a burden. And he saves his most harshest criticism for those people. And I love Jesus for that. Now, to understand exactly how this is working and the main point, what we have to understand first and foremost is this. Of the Jewish sects in the first century, Jesus is most aligned theologically with the Pharisees. Now, I know that's sometimes odd for Christians to hear. And it's really hard to share this without giving you a full history. But just like we have denominations today, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Anglican, just like we have multiple denominations, there are multiple, deno- what we, we wouldn't call them denominations in the first century, but sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism in the first century. And Phariseeism was actually one of the Jewish sects. Listen to what, some of the, what the Pharisees actually believed. They actually believed that the Bible, the Torah, was a book that was given by God. They actually believed that there was wonderful, scholastic, and sophisticated interpretations that could happen as a result of having conversation and good interpretive skills. They actually believed in the afterlife. They believed in judgment and reward. And they also believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you go down the list of things that the Pharisees believed and adhered to, compared it with some of the other Jewish sects, you will find that Jesus aligns most with the Pharisees. And Danielle and I are sometimes on this uh, commission to redeem the name of the Pharisees. Because if you read your Bible carefully, you have Pharisees following Jesus. Pharisee in Christianity has unfortunately equaled hypocrite, or equaled bad person. And what I want to share with you as a result of this study is that Pharisee is a sect of Judaism, and when he says, you Pharisees 
you hypocrites, it ought to be interpreted, you Pharisees, those of you who are Pharisees that are hypocrites, just like we have in our day and age. I'll get to that in a second. Um, Amy Jill Levine writes it this way, adherents of a particular group or set of beliefs often polemicized, argue against, most strongly against those who share similar but not identical beliefs. Catch that. Somebody who adheres to a, a group will often argue the most vehemently and the most strongly against people who share similar beliefs but not identical And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees because he believes in what the Pharisees have taught. Inspired word of God, interpretation, judgment, afterlife, resurrection of the dead, etc. But he's criticizing them harshly because they are abusing all of the beautiful things that God had intended. In other words, this is an inside critique. This is Jesus keeping his tribe accountable. This is Jesus saying, listen, you guys, you, you have what it takes, or you have the right things. You have the right traditions. You have the right interpretation, but you are binding up and using it in a horrible, horrible way. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Now, we have that in our, this is just one selection of groups of people that would be considered in our church, in our tradition, evangelical Christians. And each and every one of these, when you read them carefully, um, this is Phyllis Tickle, she is just a spitfire. She's hilarious. She talks about the emerging church and the different traditions that come together. Many of you have heard of Tony Campolo. If you haven't heard of him, YouTube some of his teachings because he is extremely harsh and extremely critical of the evangelical community. Rachel Held Evans, many of you know her, read her books, read her blog, etc. She also saves some of her harshest critiques for the evangelical community. Why? Because she's evangelical. N.T. Wright, Brian McLaren, Kenda Creasy Dean, all of these people, and this is just a selection of people that I know, you might know other people as well. They are doing the exact same thing that Jesus is doing inside critiques, tribal accountability. I am a part of you, which is why I'm so ticked off at you when you get this wrong. So, what Jesus is doing, I think one of the first things that we need to pick up and understand is the brilliance of what Jesus is doing here and the, the reason why he's so harsh and the reason why he's so critical is because what we want, honestly, is when somebody in any tribe, in any group, in any religion, if any of that ever jacks up and abuses people, who do you want ultimately to keep that group accountable? You want somebody from the inside. You want somebody who's on the inside to say, no, that's wrong. If somebody from the outside criticizes, that just feels like an attack, that feels like an abuse. But if somebody from the inside says, wait a second, you guys have this wrong, that's a whole other level of accountability and change that can happen because it comes from the inside. Oh, how we wish that our financial institutions, our technological institutions, our religious institutions, our political institutions, is it, is it fair to say that the strongest, most powerful way to make a point or to make some change is not to have a Democrat criticize a Republican or a Republican criticize a Democrat. But what's most powerful is when a Republican stands up against another Republican and says, you know what, I think you've got that wrong and here's why. Or a Democrat stands up and says to another Democrat, you've got this wrong and here's why. This is an inside critique of what Jesus is doing. And I think that is brilliant. 
Because what can make the greatest difference, what can make the greatest change, and what can bring the greatest redemption is people on the inside making this change. I love that Jesus has saved some of his most harsh critique for those who are religious. I love that he confronts those who have been commissioned by God to live out the kingdom, but have neglected the kingdom of God through hypocrisy. And I love how Jesus does this, notice this, without spurning or deprecating the religious practices, but rather focuses on the abuse, the abuses of the adherents. And this is what he does. The practices are good. The traditions are good. They teach us who we are. The second thing that I think is important, and I will try to go as fast as I can here. The second thing that I think is most important is that what Jesus does carefully in this passage is points out this axiom, this phrase that floats around in our culture, that the antidote to bad religion is not no religion, but it's good religion. In this passage, in chapter 23, verse 23 and verse 11 through 12, he makes phrases, he gives hints that we should not neglect the traditions. We should not neglect these religious practices that God has given to us. He talks about not neglecting the weightier matters of the law, and then he talks about the value of humility, if we would just humble ourselves. And so I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is not only being on the inside, giving a critique of his own tribe, but he's also moving that tribe to say, don't just dismiss all of these religious practices. Get more grounded in what God has originally planned. This is a long passage here, um, talking about humility as one of the religious practices that we should all attain to, that we should all try to exemplify. In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon writes this, Honor was proof of merit. Shame, the proof of worthlessness. But what does this say about the crucified Jesus? That was the question confronting the early Christians. Logically, they had just two opinions. Either Jesus was not as great as they had first thought, his crucifixion being evidence of his insignificance, or the notion of greatness itself had to be redefined to fit with the fact of his seemingly shameful end. Christians took the other option. For them, the crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation, but proof that greatness can express itself in humility, the noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. And what John Dixon writes here suggests is this exemplification of humility through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate religious ethic that began to permeate into our Western culture so much that people talk about humility even to this day in business circles. Where did that start from? His thesis, his suggestion, it starts with Jesus. My point is not that Christians alone can be humble. Rather, as a plain historical statement, humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm in the ancient world. This religious idea, when these Christians held even stronger to these religious ideas, being humility amongst love, faith, hope, etc., this is what began to transform the world when people all of a sudden went to go, whoa, what is this faith? What is this faith? It's not the dismissiveness of the religion or the practice or the traditions. It's the adherence to the true religious practices and traditions that God had intended for us. And if we adhere to these, like humility, that's when the world goes, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First woe, spelled W-O-E, 
Woe to you hypocrites, you religious people who are heaping burdens upon people and they can't even, you can't even carry those burdens themselves. Woe to you. An admonition, condemnation. I can't believe you're doing this. Second woe. Woe. Stop doing that. That is not the intent of the law. That is not the intent of the teaching. And yes, I know the third woe is misspelled. But the third woe is what's popularly used as in, whoa, are you surprised, delighted, inspired, and in awe? Because if we take the first woe and say, religious abuse and malpractice is not, I mean, Jesus is going to rail on this. Second woe, if we can stop for a moment and relieve ourselves of these practices, and begin to pick up the traditions and the religious practices of what Jesus truly intended, then the third woe naturally follows, like humility. Whoa, wait a second. Is this how this world works? You're telling me you really will lay down your life? You're telling me that in the midst of suffering and pain, you actually still have hope? You're telling me that these traditions ground you in meaning and purpose? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back to this slide. This is often the op- option that we see. When people see religious people do bad things or abuse as a result of religious practices, they see it really bad, so I'm just going to get rid of it. No religion. The third option here in the Jesus ethic is to actually adhere even stronger, to commit yourself even deeper, to attain even further, as best as we can by God's grace and by uh, God's you know, mercy, to adhere to those traditions, to those religious practices that could actually transform this world. And I pray that we do not confuse an adherence to the ethics of Jesus with the abuses of hypocrites, because those are two separate things in Jesus' mind. And sometimes we're going to have to work through trying to figure all of that out. I'll close with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. He said, it has been found difficult and left untried. And I think the commission for Jesus here is to say, you know, there are some really unfortunate practices and we need to dismiss ourselves of these. But then there is a practice, there is a religion, there is a tradition that is life-giving, but it is going to be hard, like forgiveness, like humility, like wearing tassels or reminding ourselves of who we are. Hard things. But that's where the life is going to be when the whole world, and including ourselves, will go, whoa, that's amazing. And that's essentially what this entire Jesus ethics series has been about. Jesus, I thank you tremendously for bringing your harsh critique to religious abuses because we feel those too. So thank you for modeling for us what it means to stand up against the abuses and against the shortcomings and against the power structures of institutions and especially religious institutions. But Lord, may we not be so dejected from all of those things. May we not be so turned off by all those things that we completely forsake all religious practice or traditions. May we be inspired by your teaching and by your ethics to adhere even stronger 
to the practices and the traditions and the religious traditions that you have for us, that we can live into this world fully and completely full of life. And I pray this in your name. Amen. That's whoa, whoa, whoa.